as we begin today, I want to ask you a question. Do you want to be uh, this kind of person over here? Do you want to be negative, irritable, and bitter? Or do you want to be over here? Do you want to be joyful and generous and resourceful? Do you want to be grateful? It is a rhetorical question. No one in the room, no one on earth is going to say, hey, I want to be over here. We don't intend to be negative, irritable, and bitter. It's not, the, it's not what we desire It's not the potential of our lives, but for many of us, way too often, it's the actual of our lives. We look up, and usually the people that are closest to us, that are struggling with us, find those traits to be paramount in us, and whether they point it out or not, they know about it. They know about our negativity, our irritability. They know about our bitterness. And over here, the same can be true because, y'all, it's contagious to be a person who's generous, to be a person who's joyful and resourceful, to be a person who is grateful. We're in this letter, as I mentioned in the beginning of the prayer today at the service, we're in a letter in Philippians. And in Philippians, it was written approximately A.D. 60-62 by a guy named Paul. And Paul is writing to a church, and we've learned a little bit about the history and context of this culture and what was happening. In week one, uh, we, we talked about gospel enjoyment, one of our values. And in, the gospel, in this vein of gospel enjoyment, we honed in week one of this Philippians series on Philippians 1.6. Anybody remember? You were here or listened online. You know, Paul says, I am sure of this. What are you sure of today? Funny thing about life, we think we're sure of certain things and then we become unsure of those things and that disappointment, that delusion, it sets in and then where do we go from here? That's the stuff that'll make you or break you, right? Because everybody experiences that. But Paul says, I am sure of this thing that he, not you, not me, not himself, but he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. He will perfect it in the day of Christ. A big promise. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He's the author and he is the perfecter of our faith. You and I, we're not good finishers. We're like the salesman who really can't close the deal, but God is the finisher and he will finish the work in you. That ought to make us relax, to stop all the straining and the striving and to realize he's doing a work and it's bigger than us and he's going to be good for it. I can take great joy in that. Anybody else this morning? He, I'm sure of this, he who began a good work in you, he'll bring it about. He'll complete it. He'll perfect it until the day of Christ. In week two, We got some history of Philippians, and we learned that it was a colony, a Roman colony in Macedonia, and it was the most status-obsessed society uh, in the world, in the ancient Mediterranean world. It was about cursus honorum, the race for honor. There was a hierarchy, and the goal there was to climb to the top of the ladder, and we, you, you can miss it if you don't dig deeper into the Bible, but in the intro, when Paul's doing a greeting. Now, when we write letters, anybody write, write letters today? You write a letter, and typically in our culture, it's, you know, dear so-and-so. In that day, it was uh, Y is writing to X, and then there's the greeting. So from Y to X, and the greeting, and more times than not with Paul, it was, hey, I'm an apostle. But in Philippians, in Philippi, he, he took a different approach. In his greeting, he said, I'm a slave. Paul and Timothy, we're writing to you, and we're slaves. In fact, we'll learn we're, he's a slave of a dishonored slave. Jesus, who models to us humility, the one who was high went low for us. And our joy and our happiness is not in creating an organization, an, in, an entity, an institution that is once again about ladder climbing. We are better. Our lives are richer and fuller if we learn to serve, if we go low, 
and get involved in the lives of other people. And last week we learned that we, looked, we addressed directly a real joy stealer, and that is so many of us can't get past our past. And I drew a circle. I call it the circle of bad. And sometimes it's my bad. And the only way out of my bad, we, the Bible has a word for it. What is it? It's repent. Proverbs twenty-eight, thirteen. He, he or she that confesses and forsakes will find mercy. The only way out of my bad is to repent. And then we wrote, you're bad. Sometimes the suffering and the angst, the joy stealer in your life is not you. It's nothing you did. It's not your fault. Someone else betrayed you or let you down. And the only way out of your bad is forgiveness. Forgiveness. And forgiveness doesn't mean that you have to necessarily re-enter that relationship. And it doesn't necessarily mean that they deserve it. It just means that you surrender your right to get even. You give up your desire for revenge, and that's when you get out of a prison. Paul's writing from a prison in AD 62, and some of us today are living in a prison. And then we wrote on the circle of bad, it's bad. It's not anything you did to cause your suffering and lack of joy. It's not necessarily something somebody else did, although we blame, but it's just bad. And it's this painful reality of suffering. And the only way out is the Bible gives us a word, it's hope. It's realizing, Romans 5, that suffering produces endurance and endurance proven character and proven character hope. And hope doesn't disappoint because God's love is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who is given to us. And next week, we're going to finish this series, this letter in Philippians chapter 4. Today, I want us to back up because we can do that, to back up to chapter 1. And I want us to look at some select passages of chapter 1. Here's what I want to do today. I want to call this a message, and for you note takers, you'll appreciate this. This is uh, four, let's put it up, four misery-enhancing strategies for life, okay? So we're going, to take the, we're going to take the opposite of Paul's teaching and his life that we learn in Philippians. We're going to call these four misery-enhancing strategies for life, and some of you are really good. The first one is this, wait to be happy when your circumstances are just right. Philippians 1.12, Paul says this, I want you to know, brothers, that what happened to me Circle that phrase if you have an open Bible. What, ha- what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Past tense, present. You see what he does there. What has happened to me. Now, let's take a breath for a second. Everybody in the room has had something happen to them. Okay? And it's different, isn't it? Like we drink out of a common cup of human experience. And we don't necessarily know it as we look at social media. And some of us don't just glance at social media. We gaze upon it. We feast upon it, right? But we all drink from this cup of common human experience. And all of us have had stuff happen to us. What has happened to me? What is your what has happened to me story? For Paul, it could be a number of things. He was shipwrecked. He was snake bitten. He was stoned. He was mocked. He was, he was mobbed, he was beaten, he was ignored, he was accused, he was interrogated, he was threatened, he was ridiculed, he was pushed out against, he was threatened, as I said, he was persecuted, he was, they plotted against him, and he was imprisoned. So the what has happened to me, I'm guessing nobody in the room has experienced all that, right? If anybody got bitten by a snake, you probably hadn't been shipwrecked. If you got shipwrecked, you probably hadn't been stoned, right? I'm just guessing. But all of us have had something happen to us, and the longer you live, and let me say, if you ascend into leadership, get ready. If you lead and you grow and you expand, you will face all the more. And Paul was a leader among leaders, and I'm telling you, he faced a lot. 
what has happened to me? What is your what has happened to me? It could be any of those things, but I really believe it was the last one that I mentioned. They plotted against him, and he was in prison. Now, in Acts 16, which gives us some understanding of the culture of Philippi and what was happening in Paul's life, in Acts 16, there is a jailhouse. Long before Elvis, there's a jailhouse rock story. Some of you know this, and God did a great work, and Paul got a taste of the reality that you can be in chains, you can be in prison, and God can still use you. And here, it's a little different. He is chained to a palace guard. It was common in that day. It wasn't some uh, preferential treatment. I, I say that playfully. It wasn't some preferential treatment that they gave Paul. But it was common in that day for prisoners to be chained to a guard. Now, the guards would rotate, whereas the prisoner would stay there. But here's Paul chained to a guard, but Paul had been thinking. In fact, he says this in Romans 15. It's the heartbeat of every church planter. It ought to be in the heartbeat of our church. Paul said, I want to preach the gospel where the gospel has not gone before. That is my ambition, he says. You know, there's, there's bad ambition and there's good ambition, and Paul's driven by a godly ambition. I want to take the gospel to where it hasn't been before. And deep in par- Paul's heart, you know this if you studied first, second, and third missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul, but he wanted to take the gospel to Rome. He wanted to take it to the palace, to Caesar himself. How do you get there? You, you got to know somebody, like our day. You got to know somebody, you got to bribe somebody, you got to break in. And wow, lo and behold, through this suffering and adversity, through his chains, God is advancing the gospel because he is in the secret service. He is there with Caesar's soldiers. That's hard to say. He's there was chained to to a secret service, and he's sharing with them. Hey, you want to know about Jesus? See, they think Paul's their prisoner. Paul thinks they are his prisoner. It's all about perspective. What has happened to me? And Paul, his ambition to take the gospel through this suffering, it's happening. It is happening and the gospel is going forth. He's not waiting to be happy when his circumstances are just right. He's not. Now is the time. Now think about that. It's sort of of foolish, an exercise in futility for you to wait to be happy when your circumstances are just right. Because when, let me ask you, when are your circumstances just right? Anybody? When, when are all your circumstances just right? Any parents in the room? You know what I'm about to say is true. A parent is never happier than their unhappiest child. You with me? And I'm a pastor and I'm a preacher. Sometimes I'm liking the pastor thing and not doing well at the preaching, no comment. Sometimes I'm liking the preaching thing, but I'm struggling deeply with the pastor part. And I'm a husband, thankfully to one wife. And I've got three kids and they're different and different people in different seasons, right? When are my circumstances and my roles always just right? When is that going to occur? How about you? You have your life, your people, the roles that you have, your vocation, your relationships. What about you? When are all the circumstances in your life going to become just right for you to be happy? Here's what I want to say to you this morning. I want to put it up on the screen. It's just a big idea. We are terrible at predicting the things that will make us happy. I don't know if you agree or disagree. The big part of you may want to resist that idea, but we are terrible at predicting the things that will make us happy. Now, let me ask you, Begs the question, do things make us happy? Be careful. Y'all know I'm full of trick questions. Do things make us happy? You hear me? In 1 Timothy chapter 6, 
It's, Paul says this. He says that wealth and things and material possessions can plunge us into ruin. It can cause us to forget about our faith and reject God, and it can hurt us. But it also says God gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let me ask you again. Did you hear that from the Bible? I'm going to go with the Bible today. But did you hear that? God gives us richly all things, certainly people, but he gives us all things to enjoy. My answer to that question, I thought about it. You didn't. But I thought about it today. My answer to that is yes, things can make us happy. But what Scripture teaches is playing out in human psychology. That yes, things can make us happy, but they don't make us as happy as we want or for as long as we want. We could refer to it as caffeinated happiness. A little while gives us a spike. A little For a little while, those things can make us feel good. You could refer to it as cotton candy happiness. Looks good. We think it's going to be good. No, it looks good. It's just empty. How about this Disney World happiness? I mean, where is kids, small kids and big kids, where is the happiest place on earth? But oftentimes, let me tell you the world that we're living in, oftentimes the expectation is higher than the actual event. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Have you been to Disney World, right? Have you seen the dad look down at kids and say, you better be happy or I'm going to give you a reason to be happy, right? Always an effective parenting strategy there, right? You better not cry. You better not pout at Christmas time. It's the happiest place on earth, but so often, and, and I'll say this, the event cannot, will not, does not ever fully meet the expectation because our taste, what we think will make us happy, doesn't last as long and it's not, it doesn't bring as much happiness as we think it will. It is perspective. And if you wait, okay, this is effective strategy for miserable living. If you wait to be happy when your circumstances are just right, you will be a miserable person. Many years ago, when we lived in Southern California, I was summoned to jury duty. And I was invited to be a part of 140 people. Now, how many of those 140 people do you think were happy? A lot. Okay. Thank you, Matthew. Um, Laura, you'll need to work with him later. Shield his ears for a second. But uh, yeah, not necessarily a lot. In fact, there were 140 unhappy campers. All right. Uh, Not 139. I was among them. Okay. We'll need to explain to Matthew jury duty later. But nobody wants to be in jury duty Uh, do they? By the way, I love the feedback. Would y'all join him, okay, in talking back to me? This would be a a much better Sunday. I show up, and we're unhappy because we might have to serve on a jury. And a man met us, and this man, a man named Chuck, spoke to us. He worked for the government, and he was happy. Is that, can that be possible? He worked for the city of San Diego, and he gave us a pep talk. And he told us about a 95-year-old woman who served jury duty. And she didn't have a car. She took multiple buses to get to the courthouse. And when this 95-year-old woman showed up, he was telling us about, he asked her, you know, Miss So-and-so, did you call ahead to make sure you needed to serve jury duty? And she said to him, you know, I don't have one of those push-button phones. She had a, a rotary phone. You young people don't know what that is. One of those, one of those phones like this, right? Landline phones. And she said, no, I couldn't do that. And he tells this inspirational story, this 95-year-old woman taking buses, multiple buses, this complicated route to get to the courthouse so she could serve God and country. And he explained to us, this is a privilege. 
It is for us a right, an honor of citizenship. It's written about in the Constitution. And the reality he told us that day, inspired by the 95-year-old woman, he said there are people all around the world right now who are fighting for the rights we have, some even dying to be able to do this. We were stirred. We were eager and ready to serve in San Diego. A judge later asked me, looking me in the eyes, he said, would you be able to find the, willing and able to find the defendant guilty. I said, are you kidding me? I'm a pastor. I preach the Bible. We all have sinned. Everybody is guilty. He's guilty. I'm guilty. You're guilty. The whole world is guilty. I did not get asked to serve on jury that day, (laughs) right? But we learned a very powerful lesson, the 140 of us, is that one man, one person, the right perspective, when you find meaning in a situation, you can alter it for everybody. Don't wait. Don't wait for all of your circumstances to line up before you find your happiness. Don't wait for that. The Bible talks about a reality. We looked at this uh, when we looked at our Galatians series um, several months ago. But it talks about the fruit of the Spirit. Do any of you know what the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5 is contrasted with? The works of the flesh. The fruit of the Spirit and the works of the flesh. And as it sounds like, the works of the flesh are bad things. All right? Now, I know Luke Bryan sings, all, everybody's good. What's that country song with the bad theology? All people are good or something like that. You know, the Bible teaches human dignity. It also teaches human depravity. Let's not forget that. But there, there is just this reality of the works of the flesh. And it's not a good thing. It's when you and I, yes, me, when we're left to our own devices, the pull, the gravitational pull downward. But the Bible says there's fruit of the Spirit. And you know them. Um, at the top, love, joy, and peace. And think about waiting till all your circumstances get just right before you become happy. Think about love. Love is a fruit of the Spirit. Fruit of the Spirit, are they are not feelings, they are conditions. Conditions that represent steady embodiment of character. They are stable. They stabilize you and I over time. They're fruit of the Spirit. You think about love. Many of us crave love. How many of you crave love? I do. But when we crave And when we idolize the feeling of being loved, we're not then willing to do the hard work of becoming a loving person and cultivating the condition of our heart where that fruit can be born, the fruit of the Spirit. Think about peace. Peace is this this very mindset that it's going to be okay, that God has got this. Isaiah 57 says this, Isaiah 57, 20, but the wicked are like the tossing sea which cannot rest, whose waves cast up mire and mud. Leave that up for a moment. Most of our analogies to the sea are good and beautiful, right? But not here in Isaiah. It's not a good thing. A a guy was hitting on a girl during spring break and the girl looked back at this guy and said to him, you remind me of the sea. He said, what do you mean? Deep and mysterious said, no, you make me sick. <laughs> the sea, for the most part, is a good thing. But here, the analogy is used in the negative light. There's the churning, there's the mud and the mire, and that is you. That's you when you try to go to sleep. That's you when you wake up in the morning. That's when anxiety and depression takes its effect. The mire and the mud, stuff gets stirred up, and you're not at peace. You're not at peace. There's the churning of the sea. 
And God says, I want to produce this peace in you. Paul would say to the church at Colossians chapter 3, the result of living in the Spirit is the peace of Christ will reign in your heart. And peace is like that, some of you know. Maybe you've tasted it before. When you're at peace with God and with others and with yourself, what a blessing, right? What a blessing that is. And you have the perspective that it's going to be okay. The second strategy for a miserable existence, compare yourself to other people. Look at Philippians chapter 1, verses 15 through 18. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry. They're comparing, aren't they? But others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. What is he saying? Let's be clear here. I want you to get this because church people need to hear it. This rivalry, this envy, it wasn't outside the church. It was inside the church. And you and I can be afflicted with the same thing. We can look around. And we can identify someone who's more successful than us in what they're doing, even in kingdom work, and we can grow envious of them. And that's a strategy, an effective strategy for a miserable experience. And Paul is saying this, when there is rivalry, there is dissension. When there is envy, there is no peace. A woman is at, in heaven, she's at the gates of heaven, and St. Peter greets her. She says, I'm so excited to be here. What do I need to do to get in? And he says to her, you just need to spell one word correctly. She says, what? He says, love. And she spells it correctly, and she enters into heaven. And a few years later, St. Peter asks her, he says, hey, i got to take a break. Would you come guard the gate? And much to her surprise, her husband shows up at the gates of heaven. She says, how you been? He says, well, actually quite well. You know that young, beautiful nurse that took care of you when you were dying? Well, I married her, and we won the lottery, and we moved out of that little house that you and I used to live in into a really big house, and we were just over in the Swiss Alps skiing when this accident occurred, and now I'm here. But I'm glad to be here at the Heaven's Gate. What do I need to get in? And she said, you just need to spell one word correctly. He said, what? And she said, Czechoslovakia. (laughs) I want to tell you this. I want to put it up on the screen. It's true. You, you won't find a happy, can we put that up? You won't find a happy, jealous person. You'll never see one. Never. And when we look around, it's really interesting. There's two studies that I was looking at this week. One study was an Olympic study that they did in the early 90s at several of the Olympics, Winter Olympics and Summer Olympics. And they talked about gold medalist and silver medalist and bronze medalist. And it was sort of a happiness gratitude study. You know, who's the happiest? Probably the person who won the gold, right? The man or woman standing on the highest platform with the the best honor, the gold medalist. But who's happier, the silver medalist or the bronze medalist? And you know what they discovered? You know I'm going to surprise you, right? It was the bronze medalist. Why? Because they were comparing themselves down thinking, hey, I almost didn't make it. I almost didn't medal. Thank goodness I made the cut. And the silver medalist, where is that medalist comparing himself or herself to? This way, to the gold. Oh, 
Almost, almost. And so some studies suggest that happy people um, compare down and not up. But a Harvard study, I'm going to go with a Harvard study, uh, suggested, this was a recent study, suggested that happy people just don't compare. That the truly truly happiest people find where they are and anchor there and live there. Last week's message, some of us can't get past our past. And we're looking back. Paul in Philippians 3, remember this? I'm not looking back. I'm looking, I'm living now. And I'm looking forward. And I'm, I have learned, Philippians 4, I've learned to be, I've learned to be content in who I am and how God's made me and right here and right now. A third effective strategy for a miserable existence is this. Go at it alone. Look at Philippians 1 Verse 25, he says this, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and what? Joy in the faith. In Philippians 1.3, a verse that some of you, when you do write those encouraging notes, you tack this on. Philippians 1.3, you give it with a baked good or frozen treat or some gift. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Paul, listen, don't miss this. Paul was very relational. I pray that for our staff. I pray that for our leaders, that we would be authentic and we would be honest and that we would be relational. This letter was Paul and Timothy. There was a man named Epaphroditus that was a partner in ministry. We see Paul and Timothy, Paul and Epaphroditus. We see Paul and John Mark, Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Lydia. In Romans 16, we see Paul listing 26 different personalities and their mamas and their daddies. And he talks about Rufus. Did y'all know there's a Rufus in the Bible? And he says, Rufus's mama is, she's like a mama to me. Paul was relational. Do not go at this alone. What you see in Philippians amidst the joy is partnership of a decision to say, we are in this Together, put this ratio on the screen. It simply says five to one. Now, what do those numbers mean? Research, fascinating study came out. It talks about workplaces and team environments. And in a workplace with a boss and employees and a team, when there are five words that are life-giving, that shed light on a situation, that uplift, that ennoble and inspire, when there are five words positive words to every one negative or difficult conversation, then that is optimal performance mode for a team. In other words, you do need to say some difficult things. You do need to face reality. The Bible has a word for it. It's called admonished. Have you ever been admonished? Like I only grow when I'm admonished. Does it hurt every single time? Am I terribly insecure? You bet. But does it make me better? Yes. Every conversation doesn't need to be sweet and syrupy and positive, but for a team to be a team, for a church to be a church, for a family to be a family, you kind of need to hit this five to one ratio. And when it goes below that, trouble ensues. On a team, at the office, in a workplace environment, in a family, in a church or small group, truly. That's why the scripture says in Hebrews, to encourage one another daily, it needs to be a practice where we speak well of each other and to each other and we take time to take to use words that bring life when we dip below that five to one so if it's if it's four to two they say if it's three to three it's two to three that's toxic you're not going to flourish there won't be human vitality in that type of environment don't go it alone it's why we see over and over 
God raised up women and men who led in the church and they were encouragers. They spoke life and we need to do that as well. Don't go it alone. Live in community and move toward depth and richness in that community. This week, I believe it was Tuesday, there was another famous Hollywood 911 call. Demi Lovato was rushed to a hospital where she suffered apparent drug overdose. TMZ and CNN, as I understand it, were fighting over uh, the legal redaction to have the 911 audio tape released. And it was released. CNN got their hands on it uh, yesterday. And in this um, 911 audio call, there's a friend at Demi Lovato's Hollywood home. And she's crying out, as you can imagine, saying, get here quickly, get here quickly. And to the, but she says something odd to the dispatcher. She says, can you make sure they turn the sirens off? Now, why would she say that? The dispatcher in the 911 recording that I listened to was helpless. He said, I can't, ma'am, this is an emergency. We're going to get to her. That's what we promised to get to them as fast as possible. I can't control that. But why? This is an easy question. Why would this friend of hers request no sirens? Privacy. Deeper than that. We don't want anyone to know. And here's what I want to say. No doubt with several hundred people in the room, there are some of us living that way with something. And we don't want anyone to know. I want to say to you, that's a surefire sign that you're going at it alone. In Philippians, you don't see that. In Philippians, you see, I need to be known, and you need to be known, and to the extent that we're known and that we're loved and that we serve each other, to that extent, there is joy. Don't go at it alone. And the fourth and final I will give to you, a strategy for a miserable experience, existence, is adopt pessimism as your outlook. Know anybody that's pessimistic? Look straight ahead. Anybody that's just, that's their outlook. Do you know you have an outlook? Everybody's got an outlook, okay? One writer, John Godfrey, talks about there is a little optimism and big optimism. And little optimism, he says, is just the thoughts that you have every day. Oh, you know, I, I hope I get a convenient parking space. I'm going to. They're going to be nice to me at church today. The sermon is almost over, and it's not. Just little bitty optimism, right? And we all, we all have figments and little iotas and inklings of just little optimisms. But big optimisms are thoughts that are lofty, thoughts like this. This is a magnificent time to be alive. This is hard, this is difficult, but God has a plan and we are going to get through it together. Something is better on the other side. There is joy in the morning after this pain. These are... These are big optimisms, and it should be no surprise that big optimisms have a much grander effect in a life than little optimisms. You ever seen the inscription? It's kind of popular in the self-motivational world. It talks about three people on a sailboat, and they see a stormy sea, and the pessimist says, look at the clouds, look at the storm clouds. And the, the optimist says the wind's gonna, it's gonna go the different direction, and the realist adjusts the sails. And like, you see that, and you're like, yeah, I'm gonna be a realist, man. I'm gonna keep it real. I'm gonna be an adjust the sails guy, right? I don't wanna be pessimistic. I don't wanna be 
overly optimistic, right? Yeah, I'm going to be a realist. And let me say that, like that inspires me too, like some of you are ready to march, right? I want to be a realist. But look, you and I need some optimism because we can't be real, fully real, because we don't know. We live with mystery and romance and uncertainty, and that is oftentimes a good thing. We don't fully, fully know, but we need some little optimism. We need some big optimism. And Paul in Philippians has more than little optimism. He has more than big optimism. In fact, he's got something bigger than that. Look at Philippians 1, 20 and 21, backing up a little bit. As it, as it is, look at these words, my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed but that will, with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body. He's an aging man. He's in chains, whether by life or by death. One of the most famous passages in all the Bible, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. In the New Testament language of the Greek, Paul, with these words, eager expectation, is taking three of the words in the Greek, the words from, the words head, and the word stretch. And he's rolling it into this dual word of expectation, eager expectation. And to give it even more meaning, he adds the word hope. And the idea there, studying it in the language this week, the idea there is that as an athlete looks away from, there's that one word, away from anything, he averts his eyes from anything that could distract him. And he stretches his head and his whole body straining forward with every cell, with every fiber of his being, because he knows something good awaits him. No matter what, no matter if it is life or death, there's this expectation there. And here's the thing about optimism. It ain't no good if it's not rooted in reality. Think of the young person on the step smoking. That person thinks, cancer won't get me. This won't increase the odds of an early death with cancer. Now, who among us will appreciate the optimism there? It needs to be rooted in a reality. And Paul is saying that's the hope that Christ gives. So in recap, here it is. If you want to pull out your phone and take a picture, four misery-enhancing strategies for life. The antithesis of how Paul lived, what he wrote about, what he talked about. Wait to be happy when your circumstances are just right. Compare yourself to other people. Go at it alone. Adopt pessimism as your outlook. God is a God of joy. It is the enemy's will for you to live in misery. It is His command for us to grow in joy. And it is a fruit, a fruit that he produces. Would you stand with me? And our band is uh, making their way up. So are some deacons and their spouses. And they're going to make their way around the room this final Sunday in July. Where did July go, by the way? This is the final Sunday of July and each and every final Sunday of the month. We, uh, we follow what Jesus taught what the New Testament prescribes to us, called commonly the Lord's Supper, communion, where we come to the table, to the elements. We take bread representing the body of Jesus. 
And this juice representing the blood of Christ shed for us. So you'll be prompted by a leader in front of you. Each row will find a station all around the room and up in our balcony today. Follow the person in front of you and take, take the bread, and take the juice and dip. It is solemn. It is joyful. It is a sacrament meaning to keep the sacred in mind. These elements that are so ordinary represent something that is so freeing. Your forgiveness. Your joy. You being called to live with Him in the moment. Father, thank You. Father, thank You that we can worship You now. The stirring and the movement and the singing, the steps that we take, the bread and the juice. Lord, we come to the cup, we come to this table thanking You that we are called, we are loved, and we are forgiven. To everyone who professes Jesus, Lord, be honored as we worship in this way.